Well, hello there, everyone. Welcome. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst for Monday, June 13th, 2016. Appreciate you guys uh, watching. So you know this podcast works in three parts. We usually respond to the fights that happened over the weekend. Then we look at some footage, and then we talk about what's ahead. Going to switch things up this week because there was nothing to talk about from over the weekend, at least not in terms of mixed martial arts at a level that we uh, usually do it at. There was no UFC, no Bellator, not even any World Series of Fighting. So here's what we're going to do, though. I promised last week that I was going to talk about Cruz versus Faber this week. That's what we're going to do. To help me do that, first, Aljamain Sterling is going to be here. He hit me up on Twitter because he had seen a previous edition of this podcast I had done and wanted to clarify some things and talk about what happened in the Caraway fight, both in terms of what went great and maybe what went not so great. He was really candid. He's really honest. I think you guys are going to enjoy that. And then uh, Patrick Wyman from Bleacher Report and Washington Post is going to help us talk about uh, Cruz versus Faber. Actually, Aljamain Sterling does that too, so both guys kind of weigh in on it. There's a lot to like there. So that's what we're going to do. Um... Aljamain Sterling first, Patrick Wyman second, Cruz versus Faber three, uh, through both of them, and then we'll talk about the fights that are ahead this weekend. Big, big weekend for fights. That should be a lot of fun. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and get to Aljamain Sterling talking about his fight with Brian Caraway, a little bit of Cruz Faber, and then what's next for him. Well, as many of you have requested, Luke, bring in someone else sometimes, vary it up. I have done just that. As you can see, the gentleman on the other side of the screen here is UFC bantamweight contender, the one and only Aljamain Sterling showing his biceps. Aljamain, how are you this fine and early morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Getting All ready right. to uh, hit Florida. Yeah, he's heading off to Florida, so I appreciate the time you're making for me uh, today. So let's do a couple of things. One, we're going to talk about what happened to you and what's next, and then I want you to weigh in if we can on a bigger fight that happened, and uh, we'll just get some of your expertise. So let's talk about your fight against Brian Caraway. Here's what I thought about it generally, and this is not too, you know, um, controversial. Went great for you early, and then, Justin here? Yeah, I'm grabbing, grabbing the big boy right now. What's that? Oh, the gold rope. Nice. <laughs> there it yeah. is. Got to be official with it. All right. Okay. All right. Here we go. Now Tracking back, if I may. Um, you had mentioned that. Uh, we, we talked about the first fight, or first, your fight with Brian Caraway, so I got off track there. First round, I should say, went really well for you. So let's focus in on that. Um, when you locked up with him, first of all, let's, let's before we even talking about making contact, what was the game plan against Brian Caraway? Now that it's all over, what were you hoping to do? What was the aim, the objective? Um, in my head was to, I wanted to prove my, my grappling dominance, I wanted to show what I was capable of doing on the ground so that if I could do it over a guy like him, then I could let the rest of the division know that, you know, if I take, I want to instill that fear of if the fight goes to the ground with me, you guys are in trouble. Obviously, my stand-up, I know I'm competent enough to kind of, you know, get out of the, just, I guess, not take big damage, but the one glaring thing is me countering in the actual fights. You know, I do well in the room, but I'm not doing it in the fights where guys are missing and I'm coming back with something, which some of these other guys are really good at, like a like a Cruz or a TJ. So, obviously, if I can't do it against a guy like Caraway, then, you know, there's, there's some work to be done there. But um, that was the ultimate game plan, coming there, proving my grappling dominance, and maybe even get a TKO finish. Now, with that grappling dominance, were you planning on taking the back, or was that just where you sort of naturally ended? I mean, obviously, you made endeavors to go for the back, but I mean, before the round started, did you know you were going to go to the back? Um, I mean, that's pretty much what I do. I, if I'm not getting mount, I'm getting back control. When I spar, when I, when I do my BJJ training on Tuesday nights, Friday mornings, 
So uh, that's kind of like instilled in me. And it's a wrestling thing because whenever I wrestled, I was a top heavy wrestler. I was a great wrestler on the mat, top and bottom, defending on bottom and wrestling on top. I was a leg rider. So wrestling like that, when I could take guys down in the fights and, and throw the legs in, it's just perfect for me in terms of what I came from. And, of course, you had that wonderful body triangle that looked like it was totally... He was doing the right thing by getting the to you on the side where you had your foot down, but he was never really able to do much with it. What was the key there? Like, how did he feel? Was he squirmy, or were, did you feel, like, absolutely in control when you had that back? You know what it was? Um, like you said, he adjusted two times, I think it was. Um, he, I had the figure four, and he managed to reach down and grab the ankle. Yes. And kind of like... He kind of like pulled it across a little bit, almost we call it a hula hoop. Now, I didn't have the other far leg in because it was a figure four. So when he does that, it allows for me, especially with my elbow on the mat, it allows for him to, to almost turn in without any trouble of him getting caught in any type of submission. So just in that position, he was very crafty in that sense. But in terms of being in trouble, I just felt like he would have gotten out at the end if that round was to go a little, little bit longer. But it would be more so me kind of abandoning the position and adapting and going to something else, probably a front hell lot. So if I fall off the top with that, I'm, I'm looking to grab the head and looking to uh, to uh, capitalize with that so I can still maintain control of the grappling situation. Kind of similar, kind of what he did to me in the second in the second round when he kept going back and forth from the back control to the front hell lot, back control to the front hell lot. We, we actually grappled exactly the same. The only difference is I felt like I was so much stronger than him when I took him down. It was almost effortless. I've never taken anybody down by just a shrug Put my I, I hit the lace with my leg in between and threading through the far leg, but the way he fell down was so easy. I was like, bro, this is like I never felt I never grappled with anybody. I don't know if it's because of the lifting I've been doing. I felt really bulky, I felt really strong. But when I took him down that easy, it kind of gave me a, a I guess a little more confidence than I probably needed, and which I guess caused me to tire myself out later in that round. All right, before we get to that, though, there were some other good moments there. You had the power half Nelson. Again, improvised, or that was something Impro that you just – is this, is this a common go-to for you? No, that's a, I improv that, man. It was really weird how that happened. I mean, I've never done that before in the room, and it was just really weird. It's, it was weird. I just went straight to Russell Moore. I'm just like – I want to hurt this guy so bad. He's, you know, he didn't want to shake my hand. <laughs> but, but it was all funny games, you know. So I'm hitting the power half, and then once his arms, because he's really flexible. That's the other thing. He's deceivingly flexible, and, and I tell you what, man, th those positions that I hit on guys, if you do it to anybody else who has a little bit less flexibility and then more muscle bound, right. they, their arms just don't go that far back. I had. Both shoulders looking like they're about to pop out the socket and had his head fully extended. And all I was saying to myself is, what kind of guy does not tap from this? This is like what your big brother does to you. And you instantly, because I know for me, I have neck problems. So you do that to me, I, I got I to gotta give in. Because it's just one of those things where it's just really not worth the, uh, you know, the tough man kind of just being crippled for the rest of, you know, God knows how long. But um. Yeah, man, it was that was like really surprising how flexible he was, but that was all improv to answer your question. All right, and so it was a good round for you. Some scored a ten eight. I scored a ten eight live. If I'm being honest, I would probably go back and score at ten nine because there wasn't a ton of ground and pound, but still very very strong, very dominant round for you. Then we move to the second round. This was a better round, obviously, for Brian Caraway. Here's the one thing I noticed on tape that I kind of want you to speak to. 
He only ever attacked your right leg. He would scoop it with one of his own legs, and then he, and in the third round, he would do single legs off of it. Did you notice that he was only ever trying to single leg your right leg? Yeah, but that's actually my stronger defensive side. So what did you make of that? Like, why was he able to have some success there? Where it was because he had that one where he would hook his leg with your leg, and then he would just basically sprawl on top of it. Is that something you commonly encounter? Yeah. But that's this is this is where it comes back from, kind of like the way the fight snowballs into the next round. The first round snowballs into the second. So the confidence I had in the first round, being able to take him down, so much easier than what I found in guys in training and just in my previous fights. Like even if you look at Mr. Guy, I took him down. The guy would get right back out because he's just really strong. Where so Caraway, great grappler, but not as strong, I want to say. But um. So, yeah, going, going into that second round, when we got into that position, I kind of had a little bit more of a disregard to how crafty he was in terms of him being able to finish a single leg and keep himself out of dangerous positions. So the key thing with that is I went from a basic wizard and a wrist where I defended one of the takedowns earlier and as soon as I decided to go to a wizard, um, abandon the wizard wrist because I started to, like I said, get too confident with my, my offensive attack, I tried to hit another shoulder lock. And this is a move I just started practicing, but I was, again, I was having success with it in the training room only against guys who aren't as high as the level as obviously a caraway because he's been here forever. Not saying that they don't have skills, but not as high as a level in terms of grappling IQ. And they're not as flexible. So when I'm hitting that in the room and I'm getting away with it and I'm getting into mount out of that position, I don't even go for the Kimura lock. I go for the shoulder. I put my elbow in the back of your in the back of your shoulder blades. I crank it all the way over, and it's the same thing—a shoulder lock. And I always end up in mount. And if I don't if I don't get in the mount and you defend the mount, I get an arm triangle. So when I when I'm going for this, you can see as soon as I reach over, I go from the wizard wrist, I'm fine. As soon as he tries to step over my leg, I go, all right, now I'm going to hit it. Because I, the leg he steps over, I want him to do that. Because I take that right leg and I lace his leg as he laces mine. And then I go for the shoulder crank and then that's so I get up in a dominant position. And as you start to slow it down, you'll see as soon as he does that and I reach over, he managed to take his head and he adjusts right at the last second where he could pop his head out and then his shoulder blade almost just really just it just rotates in a weird gumby way i'm just like what the hell did i just do and i'm sitting here like i'm not in any trouble i didn't feel threatened at all because i know what he does i prepared for that as the best of my possible you know abilities i could possibly prepare for something like that and it's defended choke the only thing was i was so lax that i didn't Think about how much time was on the clock for me to, you know, try to explode back up. There was no urgency for me to get up. But again, I was also exhausted a little bit. So I, I kind of thought about it, like, I don't know how much time is on the clock. So I'm just going to try to sit here and breathe. And when I'm ready to explode, I'm going to explode up. And then when, by the time I heard the clappers, I was like, shit. I kind of just, let, I, I got taken down with the last minute, 30 seconds after I rewatched the fight. And um, after rewatching, I actually thought I won that round. But I can see why you give it to, why you give it to, Caraway for it just looked like he was in a dominant position going from front headlock to back control, front headlock, back control. So I get it. It's just I didn't see there was no damage. That was the only thing I, I kind of looked at. I was like, you control over the strikes. I mean, it wasn't a lot of strikes, but I don't know. That's it depends on how you score it. But I, I do understand why that one judge gave me that 
probably that round. Yeah, the second round was pretty close. Um, the first was definitely yours. Third was definitely his. I can see the second being a little bit uh, more difficult to discern. Let me speak to his game generally, though. You watch his game. Here's what I, here's what I picked up, but maybe you saw things or felt things differently. He does not appear to be like one of these super dominant power wrestlers, but he's got a lot of crafty tricks. He'll go for a front headlock. He'll make you pick your poison about where you put your hands, about going for um, a guillotine, then he'll move to the back constantly, right? Like he's always sort of shifting in motion. And he seems like he's kind of heavy on top, even though he's not one of these big, as you mentioned, bulky guys. He kind of wears on you, either on your shoulders or when he pressure passes. He's kind of always digging his head in. He's he's real disciplined, too. Like he, he, if he's passing, he's got his underhooks where they need to be. How, do, how would you describe his game generally? Um, I think he's I think he's high level, hundred percent. It's just it's just so it's frustrating for me because I go with bigger, stronger guys, and I think that they're I think they're I'm going to say better in terms of just a BJJ world, but MMA world is a little bit different. You got the cage now. I go with these high level guys in my room, and then once we add in the cage factor, it's, it's a different fight. It's mm. a different it's a different grappling. And I get the better of the black belts and, and the brown belts in my room because it's just different. While we're preparing for that in the open, they can, like you said, the underhooks, utilize that. Utilize, utilize the, the, butterfly, the uh, butterfly guard, the uh, smash passes on top, the low passes on top. And they do a lot better with that in space. But once we get to the cage, it's a completely different game. That's interesting. He has a very smothering game, and he's not very muscle-bound. He's not very strong. He's not like a brute. It's just he kind of just lays on you. And that's kind of why, how I, looked at the, I look at the fight. He had my ankles, and he just kind of just lay there while I'm just like, you know what, let me try to catch my breath. And you know what, rebound for the next round. That's kind of, that's kind of the best way for me to describe that round. It was more so gas tank, dump. I underestimated how good he was in that transition of his single leg. And I went. I abandoned my basics. Something that I always teach to my wrestlers now. I always taught it in college. I taught it. I still teach it now, and I preach it. First thing my brother said to me when we, when we went to the back room is, "You did something that you always tell me not to do. Don't do the fancy stuff on defense because it doesn't work." And I said, "You know what, man? That's why I should have had you in my corner because you would have pointed that out to me. That would have been the that I honestly feel like that would have been the difference because if I didn't." I didn't get in the second round, and then I tried it again in the third. Hmm. But, yeah, smothering, smothering game on top. Not very strong. That's, that's one thing I say he's going to have some problem with because he's probably not, not going to find another guy who's going to be more willing to grapple with him as such as myself. You know, I was willing to grapple with him. I was okay in that position where these other guys are going to just look to get straight back up. Where So I was trying to, to prove something in that realm as well as that I'm just the overall better fighter. But, you know, sometimes it's not your night kind of thing. So You, you definitely had your strong moments, though. It wasn't like a complete off night. Yeah. Obviously, that first round was very great for you. You made a really interesting and, I think, smart observation there about grappling. It's one thing to grapple on these open mats. It's quite another to grapple against the cage. And as you note, when, when you guys, both of you guys, when you were going for takedowns, it was often against the cage. A lot of your sequences, whether you were on top or he was on top, they were against the cage. Why don't you think more guys train against the cage Everyone trains against the cage for wrestling and takedown defense, but no one trains against it because there was times where, like, both you and he were trying to get your backs to the fence, and then there was the times you were going for butterfly guard from there. Why don't Why don't more people train that way, just grappling specific against the cage? I, I, I'm really not sure. I know one of the I for people who don't know, I I want them to understand when you grapple. Um, on the actual cage in training, it does not feel good. It scratches up your back. I have tons of scars on my back 
from the cage. So I have to use the wall, which isn't the same as the actual cage because the cage has a little bit of give in the octagon, but not as much as some of the other rooms. Because some rooms, our cages don't go all the way into the ground like the way the octagon is. It's all the way straight into the ground, and there's no, like, um, it's hard to really describe. If you've been to any MMA gym, you'll see that the cage always has, like, some type of give. At the bottom. They're pounding on it with the body weight. It doesn't get tight. It doesn't get like a tight stretch where there's no give. So it's a little bit different, you know? So I try to simulate that by using the actual wall. We'll sit down. Guys have both legs laced. We'll sit down. Guys have a front headlock with your back against the cage. Um, guy has one far hook, and he has one leg in back against the cage. And different positions like that. And that's why for me, I, like I said, I felt comfortable there. It wasn't a thing of, you know what, this guy's really threatening me with anything. It's just kind of just laying on me. So I'm just like... I got blanketed. That's um, an interesting point. Yeah, for folks who don't know, what you're talking about is if you go to like an MMA gym, they can't replace their cages every day. So they have a yeah. cage for years. It looks pregnant almost because it's just yep. been bowed Shit. in because it's overuse. That's what you're talking about, right? Yep, yeah. exactly. All right, so let's talk about what's next for you, though. Like I mentioned before, look, it didn't go your way necessarily, but there were a lot of bright spots. You didn't get beat up hardly at all. I mean, you have lost a grappling contest in MMA, an MMA fight, but you, you look great right now. You got the gold rope, fresh haircut. Here you are headed to Florida. So what do you think should be next for you, and when are you ready to compete? You know, I was ready to get back in there right away um, just to keep the momentum going in terms of the shape I'm in, the amount of gains I made from <clears throat> this training camp. Like I said, I looked at that fight compared to my other ones. I was, I've never felt as massive going into the octagon, never. I felt really strong. I felt like my delts were on swole, freaking <laughs> ridiculous, but... You know, it's just a testament to the, the amount of training I put in for this fight. I, I was so serious about this fight, man. This is a fight I took really, really seriously. And uh, um, I think I showed what I can do. I showed the brilliance in my game. I just showed the lack of some things I clearly need to work on. I don't even know. I don't know what it is. It's something in here that's not clicking. People, I, It's frustrating when I'm hearing people say, you need to let your hands go. Oh, his striking sucks. I'm like, bro, I can show you videos on my phone. And you'll be like... So why why the hell aren't you doing that in your fights? And you, I don't know why I'm not doing it in my fights. It's really bizarre. It's like once you go from the boxing gloves to the no headgear and it's the little gloves. It's just it's just different, man. I I don't know. I'm I've been sparring with the little gloves, and it's I don't know. It's very very frustrating. The seven ounce gloves. Um, I don't know. But we're gonna we're gonna fix it. You know, I I had some setbacks in college in the same way. I uh, I made some adjustments in the offseason coming back, and I finally became an All-American after losing to the same guy five times in a row before I finally ever beat him hmm. once. And the um, funny thing is I actually beat him to go for the round for third and fourth my first year becoming an All-American in college. And I think it's just one of these things. Just I got away with the, the BS I've been doing for so long. It's not really BS. It works. It's just I got away with fighting without actually fighting for so long that um, someone actually, I guess, somewhat exposed it. And I can't even really say expose it because it's not like he hit, he didn't hit me. And it was just like, no. and he's going, and he's going to interviews saying like he, you know, I had to beat him up. I'm just like, bro, our perceptions on beating people up are completely different, completely different. Cause that, that was not a beating whatsoever. You laid on me, but, um, yeah, I don't know. He, he's going to say what he wants to say because obviously he's got a career. He it's, wants to it, advance. Do, do, you, do you know anyone in mind that you're thinking of or at least a time frame? Like you want to fight again in 2016? I, of course, 100%. You know, obviously the, that New York car is coming up November 12th. I don't right. know if they're going to – I would assume that's probably where they're going to put me. I got a ton of my friends who are already 
telling me they're 100% coming out. So I think it would make all the sense in the world to throw me on that card. And, man, you give me that much time to put in the work that I need to put in, I guarantee I'm going to come back a different animal. And um, I said that before going to this fight. And like I said, this was the best training camp I ever had, just barring injuries. But, um, and again, like I said, I talk about my neck. And I'm not trying to blame the fight on that. I think, it, But I definitely blame my psyche a little bit on those injuries. I think uh, sometimes you get a little gun shy because of certain things. You know, it's kind of like getting knocked out and then you kind of don't want to engage as much because you, you now you have that fear and that phobia of getting knocked out. And I think that's evident in a lot of people if you actually follow the sport. So it's just one of those things, man. I just got to figure out what it is to turn that corner. And I got I got great coaches, striking coaches. I look at the landscape of the top 10, the top 15. There's not many options for me right now. Most of those guys are coming off wins in the top 10. Um, the only person you have right now is Faber, Almeida. We're coming off losses, and then the loser of TJ and Asuncao. So it kind of really depends on what the matchmakers want to do with me. I know I can compete with these guys. I'm going to assume TJ wins the rematch against Asuncao, and then it's between me, Faber, and Asuncao, and Almeida. And I would assume they'll probably match up Faber and Asuncao again, make that rematch, and they'll probably have me and Almeida fight, I would think. I think, but, you know, he's coming off a pretty bad knockout. And you know what I'm saying? So for me, I, I feel like it's a blessing in disguise. Like a loss like that is going to make me better where a win like that for Caraway, he's just going to stay the same. And he's in for a rude awakening if you think that performance really warrants a title shot. And I said it before in interviews, if I don't have a good performance, I don't want a title shot because it just doesn't make any sense. And I I had a hell of a first round and then I kind of shit the bed in the second and third. So yeah, man, little little adjustments. And at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for the future. I'm, I'm, very positive person and uh i take it for what it is you can sit there and be salty about it or you can you can sit there lay it out and see what it is and make the adjustments you said it better than anyone else let's quickly transition if we can because i know you're a busy guy cruz dominic cruz the, the king of your division at least right now defended his title against uriah faber uh third time they fought second time they fought for a title as a matter of fact i guess overall yeah. when you looked at this fight what were your impressions of dominic cruz what do you make of his movement when you watch it do you have trouble telling what's going on i have to go and watch his fights three four <laughs> times before i can really pick up exactly what he's doing yeah and it's there is no real picking up because there's no it's a rhythm, but it's a broken rhythm. It's it's a very uh, there's no real way to kind of dial in a fight style like that. It's just very unpredictable, and it's kind of just playing off of what the guy gives you. And that's why I say, like when I watch that fight, it's for me, it's the common sense of stop swinging for the small the small target and hit what you can actually hit. Hit the inside leg kicks and cause him to to fall forward or kick a leg out so he has to spin out a little bit from his from his stance. But when you sit there and just watch him go side to side and you don't make him pay for anything, you kind of just freeze up or you, you bite on all his feints, his feints, it gives him more opportunities. Because now when he hits those feints, he's looking for you to, to react. And once he gets the reaction he wants, he's coming back with the over, with the left, up, the left hook, which is not a real left hook. It's just kind of like a, it's, I guess it's like a hook, but it, the way it's coming in at that different angle kind of changes the trajectory of the punch. And then he's coming up with that right uppercut or the same thing, vice versa, to the other side, the uppercut where he's going, ha, 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 ha. It's, 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 I love watching it because it's so it's so confusing for all these guys. But um, like I said, you got to chip away at what you can chip away at. You're going to keep you're gonna keep striking out all day. It's like, I don't know. It's really, it's really bizarre. It's like playing baseball with a guy throwing pitches 
behind your back and expecting you to hit it when you're, you know, you're facing this way. And now he's throwing the ball, the base, the ball this way. And you're, you're expecting to turn around and try to hit the ball real quick. So I kind of, that's the way I kind of compare it. Is just take what you can hit. Those pitches are coming out of way. So why would you reach for that pitch, right? You hit the pitches that are coming this way. And this is where he's confusing guys. He's just, you got to take what you can hit. Faber did a good job in the first round. It was close. I would possibly maybe, uh, I don't know. That, that round was really close. I, it was hard to really see who got that round. But afterwards, when Cruz, one thing I didn't like what Faber was doing, he was blocking by putting his hands out and pulling, which was really weird. And that's when Dom caught him with the left hook when he shuffled to the side. And he caught him with the left hook because I think Faber pulled out his jab. And then he didn't bring it all the way, all the way back. He just kind of just threw it out, didn't, didn't retract it back to his face. He had his right hand all the way down. And once Cruz, once Cruz came forward and he started moving and he shuffled his feet, and you don't know which way he's coming, that, that punch is disguised and comes back with that left hook. And Cruz favor does this, and it comes right around your hand and just drops you. Mm. So it's just kind of one of those things where you got you to gotta hit, hit the target you can hit. It's kind of like what Ray Longo says, punch a hole in his effing chest. You punch him in the chest, dude. You punch him in the body, places that you can actually hit where it's going to start to accumulate damage. Yeah, it's going to be frustrating, yeah, but you got to stay disciplined to fight a guy like that the same way he stays disciplined to fight everybody. And also, it feels like Faber, again, who's had a distinguished career, I want to be clear about that, but nevertheless, he's 30, I'm 36. I'm no professional athlete, but I just yeah. don't feel the same that I used to. I can tell you that. He's 37 <laughs> years old. He looks like he's in tremendous shape, but he did get dropped, as you mentioned, in this fight, and he, he looked like the leg kick sensitivity was like permanent since Jose Aldo. What did you make of his performance? I think, like I said, I think he had a great first round, and after that, I think he kind of went into a stationary target, and after, especially after that second round, after he got dropped, and then he got clipped with another good left hook in, towards the end of that round. He did land a nice up kick, but I, he kind of just went flat after that. I think once you, once you get hit with a hard punch, it kind of just takes you out of your element because you, you kind of just... You got the cobwebs up here kind of shaking up and everything. Kind of reminds me of Pettis versus Dos, Santo, Dos Anjos when he got um that first that first big right hand and then it hit him right in the eye. He couldn't really see for the rest of the fight. The rest of the fight was just very, very one-sided. Mm -hmm. So I kind of look at it like that. I take it for what it is. It's a fight. Who lands, whoever lands that first hard punch, whoever lands that first fight-changing punch, I guess, it kind of dictates the pace of the rest of the, the fight, and that's what happened. Um, I think he still fought... He fought all the way through. He shows he's not going to give up. He's going to still try to find a way. But some things glaring to me were, like I said, the, the defense of his hands instead of shell blocking or trying to um, – that's what we call, we call shell blocking or trying to just hit a little windshield wiper so that he could catch those punches the right way or parrying. This is not defense. And another guy who does that is Cormier, which is – I don't know. I, that's another story. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I know. What you, I see what you mean. One quick point I want to bring up with you, since you're a wrestler, and um, this is something I've noticed. I, I mentioned on Twitter that I thought Dominic Cruz had the best knee tap takedown in uh, maybe in MMA. Someone else said maybe Frankie Edgar. It's one yeah. A and one B with those two. The timing on that thing that between the strikes and the takedowns, it's just phenomenal, is it not? A hundred percent. And that's a, that's another thing. It's that move is good, but at the same time, you're hitting a knee tap, especially the way Cruz does it. He leaves his head out there exposed, but he does a good job of circling out of the way and then circling his head up. So mm -hmm. that's why he got caught in the first fight, because he was winning that fight, in my opinion, against Faber the first time they fought. 
um, with the striking combination, the weird movement on the feet, and then Faber managed to get a hold of his neck. Same thing Faber tried to do, I think, in the second fight and the third fight, because sometimes, like I said, Cruz leaves his head down, but he, I think after that first fight, he managed to start realizing as soon as he hits it, he needs to circle his head up, or he needs to get to a position where he's propped up, and you lose all leverage from holding on to the head. All right, before we go, this has been tremendous insight and tremendous candor from you, uh, Aljamain Starling. We really appreciate that. Uh, how can folks get in touch with you? What's the best way for the fans out there watching this to say how much uh, the, that they appreciate this and how much they want to talk to you? Is it Twitter? Is Are you more of an Instagram guy? Which one are you? I'm 100% more of a Twitter guy, but um, I you guys can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. Either one. I respond to the fans um, a lot more than probably... I should, <laughs> in terms of like the, the sometimes you know you get the trolls, but you know, I got thick skin, man. I, I can take it, I can dish it, and I can take it. So that I think that's what makes me more of a likable person. I'm a real person. I'm not gonna sit there and just get all salty about everything. I, I like to have fun with with the fans as well. So uh, you can follow me, Funkmaster underscore UFC, or you can Snapchat me. I yeah, hit me up on all that good stuff. And I'll put that graphic on the screen for everyone to make sure so they can get it right. Uh, Aljamain Sterling, tremendous stuff. We really appreciate your insight and your time. I know you got a flight to catch, so go catch your flight, and thank you so much. We can't wait to see you in the Octagon again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, so I told you I was going to get some help. I was going to recruit people to give me a hand with Cruz versus Favor 3 because it was just kind of very difficult for me to get. Joining me now, as you can see, the gentleman, I believe, on the on the right of the screen, but I can't be sure how this software recording works, but generally speaking, you know, you know who this is. This is Patrick Wyman. He is the senior MMA analyst for Bleacher Report and a contributor to the Washington Post. Now a doctor, Patrick Wyman. Doctor, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing fantastic. I worked long and hard for that doctor. What it does for me from here on out, aside from uh, aside from two cool letters, I don't think there's much to it. <laughs> how, how many years total in academia from undergrad all the way on, on up? Uh, so four years of undergrad, two years of my master's, and seven years of the PhD. Far too many. Jesus. Never wow. again. Never again, man. That's amazing. But you know what? You are a doctor. That's great. Um, all right, doctor. I wish you were the kind of doctor that could give me TRT. I last year, the doctor who could tell me about the history of the Roman Empire. I mean, I think I have more qualifications than a lot of doctors who are handing out TRT uh, prescriptions. So, so I'm just saying. I'm just throwing that out there. You all right. Know? So let's talk about Cruz versus Favorite 3, UFC 199. I had promised the the the... the viewers from last week I would get to this here's the truth about Dominic Cruz and this is why I like talking to him it's why I like talking to other people about him there he's probably the only fighter who does this to me I can really go back and I can watch any fighter and for the most part especially if I can watch it in slow motion there's very little I can't get uh, I mean I'm sure there's some things I miss of course but generally speaking I have an idea about what they're doing it is routine that when I watch Dominic Cruz I'm very confused I legitimately have sorrow for his opponents because they have to deal with this in real time I'm, I'm just watching after the fact now i picked up on a few things but let's sort of, sort of start with an overview we're going to go round by round not too much but sort of the big takeaways the big things but from an overview patrick cruz versus faber three very simple question why did cruz win why did faber lose so i think there there are a couple of different layers to this and it, some of this is going to come out when we go round by round but the big takeaways are uh 
Cruz has turned into a monster of a counterpuncher um, over the over the past few years. He could always counter guys. That was something that he could always do. Um, but he's gotten so much better at it that the reason that Faber looked so helpless in the last few rounds is because every time he tried to throw anything, whether he was trying to whether he was trying to sit back and counter, whether he was trying to lead, Cruz would counter. And as the fight wore on, the reason that Cruz or the, that Faber looked more and more helpless was because uh, Cruz was not only willing to counter when Faber led, he was willing to exchange with Faber. He just wasn't afraid of Faber's power anymore. And so that made Faber more gun shy. That made him throw these like piddly strikes from too far away. It made him look like he had no answers. Um, and this was much more pronounced than in their first fight. The second component to it is Cruz has gotten better as a fighter. He's more efficient. And unlike their, unlike their second fight back in 2011, you couldn't, uh, it was impossible for Faber to catch Cruz with the same thing twice. So every time Faber landed a good punch over the course of this fight, Cruz noted what it was that got himself in trouble. And then he just didn't do that again. So the, so he made it impossible for Faber to think, okay, I'm having success doing this thing. I'm just going to keep doing that. Made it completely impossible for Faber to get into any sort of rhythm, find any sort of consistent success using one thing. He constantly forced Faber to readjust over the course of the fight. And if you're adjusting with Dominic Cruz, you're losing. All right, fair enough. Now, the first round we go to, this round was relatively even. I think one of the judges gave Faber this round. Not that I would have, but... If you had to pick around to give him one, this seems like it would be it. A lot of wrestling. Cruz's uh, famous patented knee tap was part of this. Uh, I would still give it to Cruz. I thought he did the better job of the wrestling. But I will say, one, this was a reasonably competitive round, right? I mean, the rest of them were not, but this one was reasonably competitive. And two, I will give Favor some credit. I thought his takedown defense and takedowns were better in this fight than they were in the second one. He did seem to have some adjustments there, albeit minor and in the long run insignificant, I suppose. Yeah, so this was the I think part of the reason that Faber had the success that he did in this round because this was the only the only point where Cruz really screwed up. Cruz had one big screw up. Um, it was at the two forty five mark of the first round. Faber's trying to back Cruz up. Faber's trying to back Cruz up. He hits him with a good overhand. Um, walks through the kind of stepping knee that Cruz tries to use to 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 back Faber off. Um, gets a gets in on a double. It's a big lift slams him but couldn't maintain position when they scrambled Faber grabbed a leg uh, and then he slammed he had just a big left hand I think probably his best punch of the whole fight big left hand against Cruz uh, when Cruz had one leg off the ground um, so it's not so much anything that happened after the scramble after the takedown it was that Cruz wasn't paying attention to his positioning in the cage he let Faber back him too far up he let Faber pressure him and thought oh if I just hit him with the, if I just hit him with this knee then I'll get some space and I'll get to reset so but that was the only time and that led to the, the about a minute and a half of Faber looking like he was winning the fight. Uh, only time that happened, and it was all because of one one major screw up with his positioning. After that, like I said, Cruz doesn't make the same mistake twice in a row. He isn't going to give you space to pressure him again. So, so that was it. But the big takeaway from Cruz by the end of this round, Cruz started to get his jab popping. This was this was the best Cruz's jab has ever looked. Totally. About. Uh, about 35 seconds about 35 seconds left in the in the first round Faber manages to back Cruz up again gets him relatively close to the cage this time he plants then he angles off puts a jab right in Faber's face follows up with a with another pair of jabs before he before he turns so that Faber's back is to the fence then that was his first big flurry the first time you think oh man this is Cruz's is, Cruz is starting to get his motor revving 
So we go to the second round. He gets dropped. Faber does, I think, like a minute in, something like that, a minute and a half in or so. Um, a big left hand that Faber, one of these punches with the boxers will always tell you, if you can see it coming and you can brace, there's something to be said for that. But if you don't even see it coming, uh, then you, you're, you're, you know, he catches him dead to rights, does the old testifier church bit when he falls back. Um, but it was, it was, I had noticed that you saw Faber chasing him with his own jab and coming nowhere close. You know, Sterling actually mentioned something kind of interesting to me. What you'll see Dominic Cruz do, and I want you to speak to this, both for this moment and, of course, for the fight generally, you know, he puts himself in these ranges where he forces you to use what you think are the most efficient, convenient weapons. So in this particular case, a jab, maybe a, maybe a really tight hook if you can catch him coming in, rather than just sort of thinking to yourself, what is the easiest thing to hit if I'm not playing his games, probably leg kicks or something else, right? We can all agree it's not those punches. And you see Faber just get baited in, baited in, baited in, and then the left comes over the top. I think as he switches sides in real time in the in the combination, and it catches him clean. So tell me what you saw in the second round, and, and also just about how Cruz forces you to use weapons that he knows he can work around. Okay, so what so what Cruz was doing in that particular sequence right there that led to the that led to the knockdown was fascinating. It was brilliant. So he kind of waltzes into into Faber's range. He stands right in front of him, right in front of Faber. Um, he's in an orthodox stance, and Faber is kind of Faber's kind of reaching for him. He's thinking, okay, if I can I can just measure the distance, I can lace him with a really nice right hand. That's the you know that's the shot he wants. So then I don't think Faber really notices that he does this. Cruz steps back to southpaw, and Faber is still pumping this piddling little jab trying to measure the distance. All that he was doing there was telling Cruz exactly where he was. So knowing that that Faber was probably three, four inches too far away, even from being able to leap in with uh, with an overhand, Faber a little bit diminished these days, not moving quite as fast as he used to, still fast, but but Cruz knew exactly where he was. By throwing that jab out there, Faber thought he was measuring the distance for himself or his own shot. He was measuring the distance for Cruz. That's why Cruz just went straight for the left. That's why he felt so comfortable planting and actually getting his weight behind the shot, which is not something we used to see from Dominic Cruz. Now, he understood exactly where the two fighters were relative to each other. He understood exactly how much distance Faber could cover. He felt comfortable planting, throwing, and putting that just beautiful overhand left right on right on Faber's chin. So after this point, like again, you know, Dominic Cruz comes in layers at you. He makes it so difficult for you for you to adjust to for you to adjust to him. Like for the for most of this fight, he's been letting Faber chase, right? After the knockdown, he gets aggressive. He turns into the pressure fighter. He starts backing Faber up to the fence. Um, he he lands another hard straight about 35 seconds after that. It's amazing how confused Faber gets at this point because he's gone from thinking that he's the aggressor to him being the one who's being chased throughout the cage. Faber went three minutes without landing a strike. Between between the knockdown and the 120 mark of the second round, Faber doesn't land a single strike. So what we what we see here in the broad context of the fight is Cruz getting getting a sense for when and where it's safe to plant, when and where it's safe to stand directly in front of, of Faber. He's letting Faber measure strikes for him. Whenever Cruz starts to feel unsure of what the distance is, uh, he starts to throw the jab out there. He he starts to gain a better sense of the range. Um, like it's just ridiculous. You see how diverse Cruz's footwork is. Not only can he use it to stick and move, not only can he use it to play counterpunching games, he can pressure with it too. And he leaves you with just uh, with so many things, to, uh, different things to prepare for. You have no way of doing it. But to, to your point about um, Cruz confusing guys and and getting and baiting them into throwing certain shots at him. He does that intentionally. When I interviewed him a few weeks ago, he talked about the extent to which he tries to steer guys. Both, and that's both a, a literal thing and a metaphorical thing. That he wants to uh, that that 
he wants to steer you in a figurative sense that he wants you, he wants you doing, you thinking that what you're doing is your idea. Yeah. And then in a literal sense, he wants you moving where he wants you in the cage. He wants you moving into the shots that he, that he wants. So you see that with his leg kick. You saw this a lot with his leg kicks in this fight. He got Faber to step to a certain place, plan, and then Cruz laced them with the leg kick. But we saw this against TJ Dillashaw to your point about him baiting you into throwing these strikes. Like, if Dillashaw had thrown half of the high kicks that he threw as body kicks or leg kicks, it would have been a much different fight. But because he seems like he's there, because he seems like it's it's going to be so easy to hit him, because he seems like he's in range, you don't notice that he's the one who set the distance. And this is just much more pronounced now that he's better with the jab. Um, he's the one who's setting the distance. He's the one who's picking and choosing the angles. He's the one who's picking and choosing where you are in the cage. So even when it seems like he's the one who's putting himself in danger, he's putting himself in danger on his terms with a, with a perfect in-the-moment understanding of what his risks are the other thing about this as we move on to round three it's like even if he were to change angles or let's say he knew what he what where he wanted to be distance wise let's say he backed up five feet right he could come right back into that space very quickly and 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 just sort of re realize exactly where he needs to be i think he's got good really a really good spatial awareness too i mean i think you have to mm -hmm. to have that kind of movement style let's let's move on if we can round three again big picture here what did you see um so the, what we see in this round more than anything else is him taking away Faber's options one by one. So first, so in the first round, he took away Faber's pressure with the counter punching and the and the reactive takedowns. Even if they weren't working, he was still trying for them. Uh, in the second round, he took away Faber's ability to leap in and cover distance to measure the range with his jab. And now he's making Faber even wary to stand his ground and counter because Cruz starts to exchange in this round. So he'll so he baits a counter. So he he rushes in with something. He baits a counter shot from Faber, and then instead of backing off. The the way he would have five years ago. He sticks in the pocket, start, uses his small movement. The footwork is just as good for these purposes as it is for everything else. And then he starts to exchange. He starts to exchange in layers. So his game is layering from round to round. His exchanges are starting to layer. It's, get, it's impossible for Faber to find an easy one-off solution to all this. He's forcing Faber to take it um, sequence by sequence. And, in those, and if you're going sequence by sequence with Dominic Cruz, he's already won the fight. You might as well quit. Faber gets dropped in the fourth. If I'm not mistaken, correct? Yep. Mm -hmm. So w walk us through that. What did you see there when he got dropped? Again, another one I don't think he saw coming. I also, we're kind of just bagging on Faber here. You know, he's the fact that he went five rounds, as you pointed out, as Cruz is getting better, as he is cracking him with hard shots, I give Faber some credit for, for toughness. He is an incredibly durable, you know, um, mentally he's a very, very strong competitor. That may not count for much in terms of what's on the ledger there, but I certainly will. I, I think we should at least acknowledge that. Oh, he, Faber was there. Faber was there the whole fight. And that's the and like that's a lot more than you can say for a lot of guys who who have fought Dominic Cruz over the years. Like he, he stuck with it. He kept trying, even if I think his plan going in was probably not awesome. Um, like based on some of the quarter advice he got during that fight, I think I think he was done a disservice during his preparation and during his preparation and during the fight itself. Um, but but Faber Faber never stopped trying to hit Cruz. Like he was he was going for it the whole fight. The fact that he no longer had the tools to make that to make that a reality is not a knock on Faber so much as it is a statement about how good Dominic Cruz is both both for this fight. And and every training session leading up to it, like I don't know that there's anybody who trains smarter than Cruz does. But so we get into the fourth round. Um, there's again, it's the it's the same thing re reinforcing itself. He, this this tendency towards exchanging got more and more pronounced, and that's exactly what led to the that's exactly what led to the knockdown. So Faber steps in with a right hand. 
Cruz hits him with a backstepping right hand and gets off to an angle. But instead of getting out of range, instead of pulling all the way back, he stayed on him. He lands uh, he lands a left hook, two right hooks, uh, and then it's finally a straight left that, that puts him on the mat. But like, so the other the other piece to what we saw in this round, in addition to the exchanges, is how good uh, Cruz is from the top right. Like, I don't know that there are few, there are very few fighters in MMA. And Cruz doesn't get a ton of credit for this in the grand context of his game. But if you scramble with Cruz and you let him into the top ride, he's, he just lands brutal shots, absolutely vicious shots. He manages to torque his body into these shots, sneak them around and th- around under your arm, um, uppercuts, under, uh, uppercuts under your armpit. This is, that's how he finished Mitsugaki. And Faber got a little taste of that uh, in, in this round when he, when he had him hurt. But like, so kind of as a general point, we hear a lot about how Cruz just isn't there to be hit. And in this fight, he spent an, an increasing amount of time as the fight wore on there to be hit, but Faber still couldn't hit him. So not only in the overall context of Cruz's career, we're seeing a guy who's way, way more comfortable being in those spaces instead of constantly resetting. Um, it's that it's that he doesn't give you any he doesn't give you any options, any spaces where you where you're av- actively winning the fight. It's really, really hard to find spots where you, to find spots where you can hit him cleanly without him making you think, making you uh, putting you in trouble. All right, so then we move to the fi- fifth and final round again. This one was almost academic at this point. Faber, ha- you know, has been walked down for f- at least fifteen minutes at this point. Um, did you see anything new in that fifth round that you didn't see maybe in that third and fourth? No, I didn't see. I didn't see much aside from aside from Cruz going more to his wrestling, and maybe that was because Faber was a little bit tired. Possible that Cruz was a little bit tired too as we got towards the end of the fight. Cruz made a concerted effort to finish Faber in the first two minutes and fifteen seconds, two minutes and twenty seconds of this round. Um, but after a certain point, when it became clear that Faber was going to stick around, that there wasn't that there was that Cruz probably wasn't going to hit a one hitter quitter. Cruz seemed content to just to just work takedowns uh, and stick his jab in in, in Faber's face between rounds. Um, Eric Del Fierro told told Cruz, stay fast on the jab, no pawing. And that's exactly what Cruz did. He came out and stuck five, six, seven hard jabs right in Faber's face from the beginning of the round. Um, and when it became clear that takedowns were going to work, that Faber wasn't going to go away, I think Cruz, uh, I think Cruz was content to just okay, we'll we'll finish this off, get our get our nice easy decision. Cruz had a really cool like uh, hip bump kind of uh, kind of throw in the clinch. I couldn't exactly figure out what the proper terminology for it was, but it was slick. Um, his reactive takedowns were good. I mean. Aside, the only real takeaway from this was that the same angles that Cruz had been hitting counter punches from earlier in the fight were the same angles that he was using for entries on these takedowns. Um, and so there you see how Cruz's game layers itself from round to round, how an, uh, how an angle or a read that he shows you early in the fight is going to pay off later for something else. Um, I don't think that Cruz could have known that he was going to want to be shooting takedowns in the fifth, but the fact that they were there, that was, that was available for him. He knew that and he adjusted on the fly. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly which one that is. I have to go back and look. I can tell you, I saw one time, um, I, I won't say which UFC fighter it was, uh, but Cruz was training with another UFC fighter, and this guy's takedowns were not nearly as good. And uh, what Cruz was showing him was if you're not going to go all the way on a suplex where you know you all the way arch over, if you're, you're going to pick him up and then turn him, pick him up and then drive him in a direction, he only picks up a little bit from the upper body. And the rest he does with his lower body. So he'll bump them with his hips or he'll use one of his legs to launch their hips up. Like he'll get his leg under them. So he brings mm-hmm. his whole body up, then he brings his leg up, and then that takes the whole body. And it's just less mechanical work that he has to do with his upper body. Um, mm-hmm. Could be something like that because I remember when he showed his other UFC fighter, you could see his eyes go like that <laughs> because then the takedowns came a lot easier in practice, you know? Because like, the other one was just trying to He-Man it, and he was very, very strong, and he was getting them. But Cruz saw it like and stopped it immediately. He's like, no, 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 you can't, you can't do it this way. Um, real quickly, while we still have you, 
the way this podcast works is we usually, it's after an event, we have an overview, we look at some footage, and then we talk about what's next. So, next weekend is, I mean, it's, it's just, how good is this fight? You got Roy McDonald versus uh, Wonderboy Thompson. Where are you on this question? Not the question generally, because it's really, there's many layers to this fight. The question of, McDonald is still, what, 26, 27? Mm-hmm. But holy crap, man, that war was bad. Do you remember that there's footage that you could find after the fact where you see him flailing and the ref after the fight's over and the referee's trying to hold him like like as a car accident victim. Do you believe that that war was beneficial, neutral, or that we will see some lingering effects? So I lean towards neutral. I don't think it's beneficial to have all to have your whole face broke. The way that uh, the way that Roy McDonald did, and we've seen guys who get their nose who get their noses or an orbital shattered in one fight. We've seen that cause lingering problems down the road. Um, we, I mean, Josh Kostjak comes to mind the most as a guy who was who was always gun shy after he had his after he had his orbital broken from from GSP's jab. And you know, let's be honest, Robbie Lawler hits a hell of a lot harder than uh, than George St. Pierre does. And if Rory looked a little gun shy after this, I think it would be understandable. I really think that McDonald is not the kind of guy is the kind of guy who's going to come through this mentally stronger physically. Um, I think that's kind of another question, especially because Rory, as a 26 or 27 year old, is a guy who already has a lot of miles on his body. When he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, I think last year he was talking about all the physical therapy that he has to do and how he's had back issues. And I think it makes sense after that why he has that kind of weird hunched over stance if he's got the if he's got the kind of lower back issues that he said that he said he's had like. You know, you age in dog years in MMA, and I think if you start earlier, you may get another couple of years added to added to your prime, added to your career. But like, I don't think that Rory McDonald is going to be a prime fighter at thirty one or thirty two. You know, I think he's got maybe two or three more years mm. where he's really where he's really really in it physically. But I don't think that time has come yet where we where we need to start where we need to start thinking about McDonald being past his prime. Um, this is a fascinating matchup. Uh, it's a great. I, I think it's an inter, a really interesting fight on a lot of different levels. I just, uh, but I, I tend toward neutral in, in that sense. I think it's entirely possible we could see some negative consequences. I don't think he comes out better, but I think it's most likely that he kind of shakes it off. Most damage is done in training anyway. Um, what this has done to him mentally, he's had plenty of time off. He's got good trainers. Um, I think I think he's probably okay. Yeah, I, I am. I'm more sensitive to it. After the whole Barrow issue, now I, I thought heading into that Jeremy Stevens fight for sure, Barrow would take the damage of the two Dillashaw fights, and it would be incontestable. I think that was probably premature. But now you look at that fight with Stevens; he took a ton of damage in that one and the two Dillashaw ones. I think he's at a healthier place at featherweight in terms of what he's doing for his body. But with Barrow, I, I don't know how you can escape those questions. Maybe the shoe's not going to drop in the next one, but boy, I don't think it can. I, don't, I just don't think it's that far away for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's entirely I think that's entirely possible. It's hard to say, you know, like there's there are a lot of variables that go into that. And I think with Barrow, <clears throat> a lot of his issues come down not only to the two Dillashaw fights, but also the fact that he has been training like a madman for years and training practices at Nova Uniao and sparring sessions are known to be pretty dang brutal. And so what we saw in those two Dillashaw fights, I think is the culmination of a career where he's taken a ton of damage, not, not only in the fights, but, but, uh, but in the gym as well. And I think that seems 
less likely to be the case for me for for McDonald. I think he's probably right. coming from a from a background where there's more emphasis placed on on safer training practices. I've seen them sparring at TriStar. I know they're wearing headgear. I know they're very closely monitored. They're training in big open spaces with um, like I don't know. Have you ever seen sparring footage from uh, from the uh, from the upstairs gym with Aldo and Burrell going at it? Oh, like they're killing each other. Yeah, and it's a tiny space yeah. with – like they're blocking off parts of the mat with heavy bags and like guys are tripping all over each other. And, you know, like it's it, – that's the kind of stuff that like a guy guy trips over a bag, separates a shoulder. Maybe you don't hear about it. But like that's the kind of stupid stuff that leads to that leads to damage years and years down the road. I mean maybe maybe it's wishful thinking and I really don't want to think that a fight like that could, could just end a guy's career. But it's entirely possible. It wouldn't be surprising. Um, if it did, but it's the it's the old yeah. Nate Quarry on season one of the Ultimate Fighter. He didn't do anything wrong when he got injured. There was just too many guys training in the cage, and someone rolled into him. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Rashad Evans before the before he was scheduled to fight Shogun Hua. Same deal. Right. It's amazing what you it, you 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 think these gyms have best practices, and some do, but not as much as you think. And to your point, I think you're right. I think guys like Faraz Hobby. It's not that Andre Pedernieras doesn't care about you know Jose Aldo or. And Burrell, but you definitely get the sense that there is this, um, you know, mother duck duckling kind of phenomenon between Faraz and some of his guys that maybe there he, he's really sensitive to their needs that um, in ways that are remarkable even for people at the highest level. Okay, so we have to get out of here. How can people find your work, Doctor Wyman? Uh so you can find me on Bleacher Report. I have uh, I, I have previews coming out every every Wednesday before uh, before a weekend event. Uh, you can find my pieces on the Washington Post on Thursday. You can find me at Twitter on Patrick or on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman. Okay, I'll put up some graphic for you guys so that you can all see. You can follow Patrick's work. It's great. It's very helpful. It was helpful today. Right, you're gonna have to be around the next time Cruz fights because it always gives me fits. He's the only one who really does it, but he does it every time. And great stuff today, Patrick. Really appreciate hey, your time. You. And uh, I can't give this guy's work a, a higher recommendation. Go check it out. Thanks, man. Hey, thank you very much for having me on. My pleasure. And then last but not least, segment three, we take a look at uh, the fights that are coming up this weekend. Two events this weekend of note. You've got Bellator 156 and UFC Fight Night. I believe it's 89, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, UFC Fight Night, McDonald versus Thompson. Uh, the... Bellator event will be on Friday, June 17th. This will be at the Save Mart Center in Fresno, California. The main card is as follows. Marcus Galvan is going to defend his bantamweight title against Eduardo Dantas. There you go. You got some Nova Uniao uh, battling going on there. Chidi Njikawani taking on Tiago Jambo. Brandon Halsey returns to action to take on John Salter. And then Chris Honeycutt taking on Mikkel Parlo. Uh, Ricky Rainey and AJ Matthews are also on the prelim card. Anyone else? Of their of note, and that's really about it. Okay, so there you go. There's a Bellator card for you on Friday night. Not that great, but what are you going to do? Then on Saturday, you've got UFC Fight Night 89. This is huge. Big, big card, well, especially for the Fight Night series. Uh, the card headline, Roy McDonald taking on Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. That's big. Don Cerrone versus Patrick Cote. Steve Bosse versus Sean O'Connell. That's not that great. Uh, Olivier Aubin Marcier taking on Thibaut Guti. I can't pronounce these donks' names. Valerie Letourneau taking on Joanne Calderwood. Then you move to the preliminary card. This will be on Fox Sports 2. Jason Sago taking on Leandro Silva. Uh, Misha Sukirnov taking on Ion Kutalaba. Tam Demacroy taking on Christoph Jocko. Chris Beal versus Joe Soto. Then you move to the preliminary card. 
Fight Pass portion. Headlining that is the Spartan, Elias Theodoro taking on Sam Alvey. Random Marcos returns to action against Jocelyn Jones-Liebarger. Colby Covington versus Jonathan Munier. And then Ali Bagautinov taking on uh, Gene Herrera. Uh, I probably mispronounced half of those names, but that's what happens when you have a fight night card. Okay, so... Any questions, email me, lukethomas at sbnation.com. Thank you guys so much for watching. Follow Aljamain Sterling on Twitter or Instagram or wherever, and then follow Patrick Wyman on Twitter as well. Appreciate you guys watching, and until next time, enjoy the fights.